You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Tuesday. And thank you for joining me for tonight's conversation. So I want to just say tonight's going to be a little bit more casual. It's not going to be a strong teaching per se. It's more going to be like sounding an alarm of and and a call to do something different. That's really what tonight's conversation is going to be. And I want to share some thoughts that I've been having the last kind of really the last two or three months. Um, I've been putting this broadcast together in my mind and wanted to share some thoughts about what I've been noticing that is happening to, for a lot of Christians and um, that we're kind of in a time of transition and uncertainty for many of us. And if we're really honest, I know that some of us are really struggling. Some of us, uh, since the quarantine, have lost our church. We've lost friendships. We've lost um, relationships with some family members. People have canceled us. They've disconnected from us. And I just kind of wanted to spend some time tonight uh, talking about the state of the church in America and some patterns that I'm noticing and to call us to a renewed commitment of our faith. So if you're new to my channel, uh, I just want to give you a quick orientation that this channel is dedicated to proclaiming the historic Christian faith as it was taught and preserved by the ancient church and to explore how we can respond to what's happening in the culture right now through the lens of the historic Christian worldview. This is not the channel for you where if you're looking for us to do magic tricks with the Bible to make it fit whatever our culture is telling us right now. Um, this is not the channel where uh, we're going to give a lot of insight into being liked by our culture. Uh, we look to the scriptures first to shape our thoughts and our feelings and our opinions. And we use the early history of the church as a sort of as a check or a, a boundary or a guardrail to help keep us from wandering out of the true faith. So with all of that said, uh, let's get into this. When we went into lockdown in, in mid-March, um, you know, most churches, uh, when they shut down, quickly converted to live streaming. I know that some churches that had delayed live streaming their services before suddenly, you know, in a matter of days, their tech guy had to figure out some kind of a way to start live streaming the services. And it was, it, it has been a terribly stressful time for many pastors, um, many tech guys, media pastors, and they basically had to reinvent ministry almost overnight. Like, how are we going to shepherd these people that we have no face-to-face -face contact with anymore? Um, and many churches aren't super-funded megachurches. You know, they don't have big budgets. Uh, they're just regular men and women who are trying to faithfully teach the word and shepherd their congregation. And it's been a long road for many faithful pastors, and my heart really goes out to them. I was talking to a pastor recently and you know he's just a pastor of a mid-sized church and just trying to grind it out for the kingdom of god and figuring out how to shepherd his people and i know he's one that represents thousands um that have gone through that process in the last several months and so for for pastors you know i think um it's good to have grace with them in this this hard time because people are looking to them for leadership. And sometimes when people are looking to leadership, it's hard to give yourself space to just figure out what's happening around us. And so, you know, that's, they have definitely been in a journey, many of them. But now the question is quickly becoming, what is it going to look like when people come back to church? And will churches ever return to their pre-COVID state? Now, uh, I've been wanting to talk for a while about a Barna study that was done early in the quarantine. It was done in late April through early May of this year. So the percentages mentioned may have shifted again in the recent months since the pandemic has progressed. But I do think this study is interesting because it identifies a few different types of churchgoers 
that are unique in this era of digital church. And so Bob's going to put up on the screen here, the Barna study itself and the link to it. So you can go look it up and read the study for yourself. It's called the state of the church. So just go look for the state of the church 2020. And um, it's kind of an interesting study um, that they're doing there, but it particularly pertains to church attendance during the early days of COVID. So you can check that out. What's interesting about this study is that they um, looked at what they call practicing Christians and the habits of practicing Christians during COVID. And they define practicing Christians as those who identify as Christian and agree strongly that faith is very important in their lives and attend church at least monthly, which to be honest, monthly seems like a pretty low bar (laughs) if you're very serious about your faith, but okay. This is practicing Christians. That's how they're defining that. And they break those practicing Christians into three categories. The first category of Christians who were streaming their pre COVID-19 church online And then the second one is Christians who are streaming a different church online. And then third are Christians who have stopped attending church altogether. So when you look at this bar graph, it's kind of interesting that only 35% of practicing Christians were still attending their pre-COVID church. That's like one third. That's a pretty startling number. 14% had switched churches um, during COVID. Um, 32%, another third, have stopped attending church altogether. That's, that's another very interesting number. And then we have this 18% who have started kind of church surfing. Uh, they're, they're checking out other churches online. So only about a third are still attending their pre-COVID church. That could have some really interesting impacts on a lot of church attendance. Now, obviously, there would be some carryover. People that left this church may come over here to this church. Um, But to look at that a third, another third have stopped attending church altogether. I'd be very curious um, for an update from Barna about you know, how things are settling in now. I know that many states are back in person. Uh, California is still struggling to find our way. Um, We're still quite restrictive here. But I I do wonder how well these numbers still represent what's happening or if there have been additional shifts. I would be super curious about that. But again, these are numbers early on in in the COVID lockdown. Now, when we break these numbers into age categories, another really interesting picture emerges. So what we see here is kind of the three generations of boomers, Gen X, I'm a Gen X, and millennials. And I think that these numbers are interesting because the red bars are those who have stopped attending altogether. So 50% of millennials have stopped attending church altogether. 8% have switched and 30% have stayed. So you still see that one third kind of staying pretty steady across the generations. Gen X, 35% have left the church altogether, stopped attending and 26% of boomers. So about half of the millennials number. But this is kind of um, fascinating with... uh, what's going on. So, and again, due to low sample size, it says data for uh, Christian elders, which I assume is older than the boomers and Gen Z who would be younger than the millennials isn't shown. So they didn't have enough big enough sample size for, for those groups. But um, I, I do find this interesting because the younger generations might be more accustomed to digital routines and innovations Um, But they seem to have the more tenuous relationship with the church during this time of digital engagement. So what you you might expect is the younger generation would be more engaged with church because they're more into technology. But that actually hasn't played out that way. Uh, And these numbers really have led me to have all manner of questions 
about discipleship. Like, how do you disciple people live streaming? Um, and is live streaming the same thing as shepherding? Um, churches might be live streaming well. Their production value may have, have gone up during COVID, you know. Um, but does that mean they're shepherding people well? Um, many churches have upgraded their virtual experience, if you will, you know, to some degree, all pastors are televangelists now, I guess. Um, but I do have questions about how effectively our shepherding is going and have, have the switch to live streaming. Um, does that make us actually think that we're still going to church and what is the, I would be curious, like what hindrances to spiritual growth that have come up as a result of that change. So, you know, those are just some, some questions I have, but I think the silver lining in all of this is that, you know, the deck is being reshuffled to a degree. And that's why I called this, uh, reshuffling the deck that is the name of this episode because um, some people that have been naming the name of Jesus or have been silently sitting in the pews are now self-selecting out. And that's interesting to notice um, what's happening there. Um, I think that some churches are going to probably close um, and that might be hard to hear, but I think it's very likely true. Um and other pastors, maybe through the pandemic, might have to sharpen or, or be reminded of why they went into ministry in the first place and what the actual mission of the church is supposed to be in equipping the saints, not just putting on a weekly show. But, um, you know, I think that there is a certain reshuffling of the deck that's happening. People are having to reorient themselves like, yeah, why do I do these things? Why am I in this rhythm? What is the purpose of this activity that I engage in? And um, I think that there's, there's definitely going to be some church closures and that might in some cases not be a bad thing. Um, I think some churches are going to probably close because of hard money times and that's sad, but I think there is one critical thing that pastors must do if they want to keep their churches vibrant. And I'm going to talk about that in the third section of this discussion. I'm going to go out to the comments and see what's up. Sarah, we switched churches to one that opened outside because our church chose to stay closed until most recently. It was sad to see them live in fear and view an outside service, not having the right production value. Mm. So they would not move to it. Wow. It's going to let that linger in the air there a little bit. That's a good comment. I can't handle that kind of superficiality. We are Gen X and they are mostly millennials in leadership. I view that as part of the problem. Plus, I really think we are seeing progressive churches rising to the surface. Yes. I didn't realize that we were out of progressive church, a progressive church until COVID happened. See, and I, Sarah, I'm so glad you made that comment because I don't think you're alone. We have been getting a lot of letters to this effect where there has been this pattern that we're noticing in the letters that we're getting where people are like, I didn't realize that I was in a quasi progressive church or that it was starting to march toward progressivism. And then with all of the, the, cultural unrest that happened, all of a sudden my eyes were open. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Do I really want to be here anymore? So you are definitely not alone in experiencing that. Um, so, and yeah, my question about this whole turning church into a virtual experience is very peculiar because I think that there is a misunderstanding of what church is about. And that it's just about the worship service. And so we can just transition to a worship service. But that's not historically what the church has really been about. And even in the worst times in our in our history, even when persecution was horrible, uh, Christians risked their lives to meet together. It means something to to meet together. And 
shepherding is really hard when you're just not seeing people and you have no idea what's going on in their lives. So, yeah, any other comments that I need to... Okay. Um, I've seen two general responses, Amy says, to the extended closures. The church is not a building. Yes, I've heard that too. And general disconnection and wandering and upset over no connection to community. Yeah, I agree. And I think the church is not a building was like okay for two or three weeks. But after that, it started to become kind of peculiar to me. Um, I think that the connection piece and, and what I really was intentional in my wording earlier about pastors needing to reinvent things like we can't just reinvent the virtual service. We've got to reinvent how we shepherd people because there has been a huge like kind of back door that people have left the church. And I don't think a lot of these pastors don't have any idea who still is going to their church, who still thinks of themselves as being connected to their church. So, yeah, it's um, it's an interesting time that we live in. Okay, the second thing that I've been noticing during the last six months is the amount of correspondence that uh, Monique and I, my ministry partner, have been receiving from the people who have left their church in the aftermath of our country's uh, cultural tensions and, and riots. Um, we've done a couple of informal polls on Monique's uh, Facebook page over at the Center for Biblical Unity. And there is a significant number of people, I would say at least 30%. I think I'm being conservative. It's probably more than that. But they've left their church in the last six months due to noticing their local church drifting into progressive theology, or they had noticed it before COVID, but they were sort of tolerating it. And then it accelerated. And they're like, I can't tolerate this anymore they kind of reach the threshold um another reason that we've been hearing a lot about is promote their church promoting resources that advocated for critical theory they have small groups reading white fragility and the color of compromise uh based on the the letters that we've received there's also a significant number of people that have just silently left they they just don't want to have you know the hard conversations they just went somewhere else and, and, you know, no shame in your game if, if that's what's happened, but they just stopped watching their church's live stream and they started attending a different church via live stream. And now maybe they're going in person to that church um, and they're, or they're looking for a new church to attend in person. Um, Many courageous people have written to us and talked about how they have stepped into hard conversations with their pastors about these issues. I have one very close friend. Um, Boy, I give her a ton of credit. She took our materials and created her own PowerPoint presentation and went and made, just through God's favor, was invited to give her presentation in front of her elder board. So she's, she's not a cultural critic. She's a very quiet person. She's sort of an introvert. She has a background in physics, um, actually. Uh, She's been a high school physics teacher, but she's really been a stay-at-home mom for like 20 years. And But she was so burdened by what she saw. So she went to our elders and gave this whole presentation and encouraged them to kind of go a different direction. And we've had so many letters from people that have had different levels of that, of hard conversations, talking to their pastors, trying to figure out like, hey, what's happening What's going on here? How come you're how come you're saying these things from the pulpit? How come you're using these terms all of a sudden? How come we're promoting these resources? And there's been a lot of mixed results. Some people have told us stories of how after having the conversation with the pastor, it became very clear to them, very apparent to them that the pastor was knowingly and intentionally taking the church down the path of critical race theory or progressive Christianity. And um, I'm thinking about one particularly heartbreaking letter that Monique read to me. Um, we got it on a, on some morning. We were in Georgia, actually. We're standing outside of the, the Flying Biscuit <laughs> in Peachtree City, Iowa, uh, Georgia. And um, she's reading me this letter from this guy. And he um, had gone to his elders and with his concerns and just so humbly wanted to talk to them and say, hey, like, guys, this is not the way. Thinking in his mind, they just don't know better. 
this is just a mistake. It's just a misunderstanding. I'm going to, I'm going to step up. I'm going to, I'm going to tell them, you know, I'm going to bring this to their attention and it's going to go better. And by the end of the conversation, um, he realized he was a man without a church because they were knowingly and intentionally taking the church in a different direction. And he was just, he couldn't believe it. He was just stunned. And he, it is very painful letter that he, that he wrote to us of, of his, of, his experience and what had just happened. Um, other people have written to us. They've had more success. They've went and had a, a courageous conversation with their pastor about the dangers of critical race theory. It caused him to rethink his position. And I've heard a couple stories where the pastor actually went in and um, modified the church's resources page after getting some pushback. So there's been very mixed results, a lot of, a lot of things, but those are some of the major trends that I've noticed so related to this, I'm noticing that many seminaries are now becoming more public about their teaching about critical race theory, liberation theology, and progressive theology in their classes. Um, I think that prior to George Floyd, um, the, the critical race theory and liberation theology stuff was there in a lot of evangelical seminaries, but it was just more kind of under the radar. It was, it was a little bit more hidden. Schools were pretty good at keeping things scrubbed and and keeping the public image polished. But it, it, I was talking to um, a philosopher the other day, and he, he said, you know, this stuff's been under the radar in a lot of seminaries for a long time. But now it's like it, 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 it escaped the lab. You know, now it's in the public culture and everybody knows about it. It kind of went feral. And now all of this terminology uh, from critical race theory, you know, anti-racism and whiteness and white fragility and all this. Now it's on everybody's lips <laughs> and it's, it's left the, the lab of academia and it's out in the general public. And so it's just more open now. And I think this is another way that the deck is being reshuffled because we know now where people stand a lot more clearly. And there can be a certain benefit to that. Like one thing I really appreciate about woke people is they're super clear. They're super clear about their stand. And so it's like, great, awesome, glad to know where you stand. I mean, that's fantastic. Now we can have a conversation about where I stand and, you know, and try to build some bridges. But a lot of people who buy into the ideas of woke ideology and critical race theory, they're super clear about their stand. And I think that that helps to bring about the reshuffling of the deck because now we know, like, Who's sympathetic to BLM and, and who's promoting Abraham Kendi in their small group? Like we're, we're a lot more clear now about those things. But here's the downside. <laughs> and I'm getting these letters, too. It's going to be very hard for future pastors to find solid seminary education without the influence of critical race theory. Like you're if you're thinking about seminary right now, you're going to, have to be super intentional about vetting your profs and your school and your seminary. Uh, I did a blog post a few days ago about how to vet a school. It was mostly for talking about undergraduate uh, Christian colleges, but there's definitely some principles there that you could apply in the seminary context. But, but here's why this matters for everybody. Seminary students go on to become pastors and shape their future congregations. So if you want to know what's going to happen in five to 10 years in your church, watch where your, where your pastor went to seminary, because that's how they've been taught. So even if your church is okay right now and is holding solid, whenever you have the next pulpit fill, whenever you have that next job opening uh, for a youth pastor, children's pastor, you have to know that if that person has been educated at an evangelical seminary in the last five to 10 years, they have likely been influenced by these frameworks. And again, it used to just be more hidden. Now it's now it's up front, you know? And so when, if you can get on those committees, I know it's a pain and you're busy, but if you really want to have an influence, a voice of influence, try to get on those committees, volunteer to be on the hiring committee to help screen people um, ask the hard questions. What's your view of race? Where do you get that? You know, you're going to have to be that person to help guard the sheep a little bit. And 
it, this ideology will infiltrate how your pastor teaches. So if your pastor just starts seminary now, in five years to 10 years, this is the perspective that he's going to be teaching from. He's going to be taught how to approach the scriptures, probably with a lens influenced by what's called standpoint epistemology, which is something we're going to talk about on the show in a couple of weeks. He's going to be taught how to interpret the scripture through the lens of the oppressor versus oppressed ideology. And people in the pews learn how to interpret the scripture based on what they see modeled in the pulpit of their local church. It is the water that you swim in. So this whole seminary question is really important as we look forward. And, and I want to make my position very clear. I, I don't see, I have had some emails this week. Like that I had somebody call me xenophobic. That was fun. Um, they're like, well, you just don't want people to learn other perspectives. No, actually, that's not my position. My position is that I don't want historic Christianity to be thrown in together with secular frameworks like critical race theory or sub-Christian frameworks like liberation theology or progressive theology. I don't want a Jesus rapper on on frameworks that are not consistent with the historic Christian faith. That's my problem. I don't have any problem with learning other frameworks. I think we should learn other frameworks. I would love to see more apologetics classes incorporate critical theory and liberation theology into an, a, a standard apo- apologetics curriculum in seminaries, but it needs to be taught f- with, you know, from a mindset of, how do we understand this? How do we question this? What are the basic assumptions? And, and responding to it as a cultural challenge, not simply embracing it and then proceeding from there. Those are two very different come froms. So my issue is not encountering a framework that is not Christian. That's not my, that's not my problem. My problem is putting these frameworks and teaching them as if they are true and not critiquing them, not having them as an endeavor of apologetics. And so what I see happening is that there's a lot of people like y'all, we can't be in denial about what's happening at our favorite school or seminary. I made a post a couple of weeks ago and people were like, well, it's not happening at my school. My school is safe. I knew those schools weren't safe. Um, we need to be in reality about what is happening, even at our favorite seminaries and our favorite Christian colleges. Um, and we need to be circumspect about it because here, here's the thing. If the seminary or the Christian university doesn't have a public statement about their position on critical race theory and black lives matter on their website, it most likely already employs faculty who are sympathetic to that framework. And there's probably a very good reason why the school doesn't have a public statement posted. And so we really have to um, have our eyes open and have transparency about these issues. And, and I do want to give a shout out to my friends at Southern Evangelical Seminary. I didn't graduate from there. But, but they, I think, are showing tremendous leadership. So grateful for their voice. They have posted a very thoughtful statement on um, stating their position so clearly on these issues. It's called Racism and Social Justice, and it's available on their website. Just go to ses.edu backslash racism, and you can find that. And I want to encourage you, go read that. That is the standard. That's the gold standard of what every seminary and church who wants to make their position very clear that they are going to be a stand to preserve the historic Christian faith. This is what y'all need to be doing (laughs) is something like this. And if you can't, if you can't write it because your staff is small, just say we, this just link to this. This is what we affirm. 
But if your pastor is simply saying, well, we condemn all forms of racism, but then you've heard him talk positively about, you know, BLM or advocating narratives about white people uh, all being racist, then something's amiss. There needs to be some clarifying conversations. But I, I think that the effect of all of this, the COVID, the, the church drift, the, what we're noticing about seminaries, that what I'm seeing happening is that there's, there's, there's a lot of people who are finding themselves without a home church um, they, and they don't know how to find a church where the pastor hasn't, hasn't been educated in woke theology and social, secular social justice and potential seminary students are feeling like they don't know where to go. And it's, it's, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> so uh, let me go back out to the comments and then I'll kind of talk, start talking about a way forward and all of this. Becky says our church's online attendance has increased exponentially during COVID. We're technically a mega church. I'm wondering if people are changing to larger churches due to better technology. Oh, that's an interesting, interesting theory. Yeah. Justin, it's been a struggle for us. My wife and I decided to open our home to young adults outside of the umbrella of our church until some restrictions are lifted. Yeah, that might, that's, that's even violating some of the new things, Justin. You better go look those up, new CDC requirements for California. Um, it's very sad. Oh, Aaron, I'm so glad you made this comment. I love my church. It is a Bible-based, non-denominational church. My concern isn't that it's flirting. I love that word, flirting with progressivism or CRT, but the pastors seem to want to just ignore it or not address it at all. Like we don't know, we don't talk about it. It's not happening. La 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 la. It seems naive and almost condones it in some sense. Aaron, I am so glad you made this comment. Okay. Because this is, this is so true. We have had a lot of conversations revolving this different people. And if you haven't yet watched our conversation with Elisa Childers, we actually did a whole half hour discussion about this very issue. Um, I think I posted a few days ago on the public um, center for biblical unity page. And um, you know, the thing is, is there's real unity and there's superficial unity. And I think that pastors need to get clear about this, that a lot of pastors think that superficial unity is real unity. And it's not like not talking about a problem doesn't make the problem get resolved. It just buries it under the surface and then boils up in your women's groups or your men's groups or your youth group or the hiring of the next youth pastor. But it's going to be there. And until the pastor and the elders really make a strong stand and have moral clarity and say, this, this will not be tolerated. This is sub-Christian teaching. Um, you know, it's, it's, their church will be divided. Now, they might not want to talk about it, but the church is already divided. The people are already taking sides. And so I really want to issue a call to any pastors who happen to watch this. Please, I'm begging you, have some moral courage. Elders, have some moral courage. Have the hard conversations. Figure out your church's stand. Have a public statement. Have public conversations. Some people will get upset, but plant your flag on historic Christianity. That is what we need. If nobody's going to talk about it, that's only superficial unity. That's not real unity. See, what real unity is, is common beliefs. It's united in the truth. Truth is more important than unity. Do you get that? Write that down. Meme that, somebody. Truth is more important than unity. Because truth is the ground of unity. If you look in Ephesians 4, it talks about how do we keep the bond of peace? It's humility, it's kindness, it's love, and it's truth. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. 
How do we do that? Well, we become united in our knowledge of Christ. We become united in the teachings that have been handed down by the apostles. The only ground for real unity is doctrine, is sound doctrine. It's the historic Christian faith. That is the ground of unity. Unity is not not arguing, not talking about it. That's superficial unity. Real unity says um, we are from all different backgrounds, but we are united in our common belief that Jesus is Lord. That we have, that we confess the Apostles' Creed. This is what makes us unified. Pastors, I'm begging you, please have the moral courage to let people leave your church, to let them select out, to stand for truth. I'm kind of begging you. Okay, let's go back to the comments. Oh, Anthony. I know who you are. We need to seriously consider dropping the traditional seminary route. That was my very next point. Thank you. Uh, and move and place pastoral education back in the local church. We also need to reinstate the ecclesial, ecclesial function of doctor of the church. These would be PhDs in the relevant disciplines who are on staff informing pastors. And oh, Anthony, would you, I should just give you the mic because yes, brother, this is what we need. Okay. This is a man with a plan to advise the pastors and elders as to what is sound doctrine and what are false gospels in the, in the church and in the culture. The first of these is easier than the second. And that especially because to identify a false philosophy requires more time and work. Ooh, yes, I know that it has cost me thousands of hours. I don't have any hobbies and my car is very dirty. I don't do other things. I'm studying weird things like critical theory all the time. Yes, Anthony, this is the way forward. We need a crop of new ministry training schools to pop up. We need to start thinking differently about how we are going to educate pastors. We, uh, okay, I'm going to say something crazy. I love seminary. Seminary was a happy time in my life. I love the learning. I love the camaraderie. I love my profs. Many of them, uh, some of them have retired. Some of them have gone on to, to glory. Some of them are still teaching. I love my profs. I love everything they invested in me. I love my seminary. I love all of that. But friends, sometimes people in authority lose their way. And we need pastors who will be brave and not care about accreditation anymore. We can't, there's some things where we might just have to decide are not as important as sound doctrine. We need ministry schools to pop up. We need them to pop up in the local churches. Um, They might not be accredited, um, but at some point we are going to have to Stop caring, caring about being accepted by the world system and make our own system. We're going to have to preserve sound doctrine. Uh, We need theology profs. Maybe you're a theology prof watching this right now. Maybe you've been let go from your job. Some of you have called me. You've been let go from your very good, formerly sound seminary. And you're thinking, I don't know what to do. I want to tell you what to do right now. Set up shop on Zoom. Start offering alternative ways for pastors to get educated. Set up classes. Enroll lay people. Get your own platform. This is what we need. We, I know that there are theology profs who are, who are scared to say anything. Some of them have signed non-disclosure Agreements, they can't be public about why they're no longer, why they were let go, why they're no longer at their school. Doesn't matter. Start your own school. Start your own school. Just even if all you're doing is is starting, you know, even if you got to go get a job at Trader Joe's during the day to pay your bills and then you come home and you do Zoom classes a couple of times a week, go do it. 
Start offering alternative ways for pastors to get educated. We need a crop of men who haven't been formally educated. This is the second part of this. First, we need alternative ministry schools. Secondly, we need a crop of men who have been formally, who haven't been formally trained, but boy, they have a heart to shepherd God's people. And I, I, I'm begging you right now, start, open up your homes if you can, if it's legal, whatever you feel like the Lord is leading you to do, but set up, start up, do whatever you got to do to, to get some connections going and start home groups. You might be an electrician, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. I don't really care, but we need an army of men to hear the call of God and to start shepherding people outside the system. Because right now I'm just going to call a thing, a thing. The machine of big Eva is a mess and formerly trusted platforms and seminaries and universities are now mixing in aberrant doctrines, conditioning people and students into secular social justice, critical race theory, progressive Christianity. We need men with a vision and the passion to preserve the faith, moral courage to lay it on the line, to step up and shepherd their families, the eight to 10 people in their lives. Don't worry about starting a church. Don't worry about that. Just figure out, find three or four families around you that are also just figuring out like, where do we go? How do we walk together? Go find them and bring them in your home. Start shepherding them. Start figuring out ways of taking classes um, online uh, through even through non-accredited schools. This is what we are going to have to do. We have got to stop trying to fix the system in most cases. Now, there are some some schools I think could still be rescued. And if you're in those places, be salt and light, be brave, have brave conversations, fight the good fight, go do it. But if you are in a situation and you're living in Wyoming and you can't find a non-woke church, start a home group, (laughs) you know, do what you got to do to disciple your family. Okay. All right. Let's go to the questions and then we're going to take a couple other questions I had prepared. Karen says, my husband pastored without a seminary degree, and I think it benefited him. You can audit classes through SES. You can still find some good content for free um, through various seminaries that they haven't taken down yet um, from from solid professors. Uh, Ligonier offers some good stuff uh, for low cost. Um, you can start watching my videos. Thanks, Alicia, for, Alicia for that uh, shout out. Appreciate it. Um, so yes, we need people. Yeah. Uh, Holly Calvary chapel was organic like this in tra- training up leaders. You're right. And that's kind of what I'm envisioning is like the seventies all over again. Um, and so, yeah. All right, let's go to uh, Morgan's c- question. I sent to Bob earlier. He had emailed me on messenger earlier and I said, I would answer it tonight on the show. My church has been keeping a biblical worldview in regards to CRT and progressivism. However, they still aren't meeting in person and won't be for the foreseeable future. I just can't do the TV church thing any longer. It just isn't church for me to me. I feel your pain there, (laughs) Morgan. uh, We've started going to a friend's church that meets in person outdoors. Now, what really gets me is that by the state orders, they cannot meet longer than one hour. Oh, this isn't Morgan's question, but it's okay. We'll do it. This is uh, Jennifer's question. Uh, it is they can't meet longer than one hour or it is deemed a gathering and not allowed. So it's limited to only a couple of short worship songs and a shorter sermon. This rule makes no sense to me with being outdoors and socially distancing, which people are doing. But then again, a lot of stuff in this pandemic makes no sense. Jennifer, you got that right. <laughs> I think that this this sentiment that you're expressing here absolutely encapsulates what a lot of people are feeling. It's like, look, I'm trying to follow the rules. I'm trying to find my way. I'm trying to, to sort this all out. And yet I I miss people. (laughs) I want fellowship. I want shepherding. I want to be connected. And I want to tell you, like, those are normal needs. The God has constructed the human brain to need connection. He has constructed the body of Christ with people in it. And so I get the sentiment 
that, you know, well, the church is, is people and, and not a building. Yeah. But what happens when you're in isolation? Then you don't even have the people and zoom is just not the same. It, it, it the whole virtual thing, it like registers in a different place in your brain. So I, I think that, you know, to have the needs to be in person is normal. That's the way God made our brain. So don't ignore that. That's okay. And look, some people need, need the live streaming. You know, they're, they're super vulnerable. Great. Let them have the freedom to do that. That's a great provision for them. But it is normal to want connection and fellowship and in-person worship. And that's okay. You know, we just might have to be a little creative in, in how we engage with that for a while. Okay, now let's do Morgan, Morgan's question. Uh, basically, I'm feeling called to do something similar to what it seems like you do, and I have no idea how to do it. I've been exploring seminary and getting discouraged with the CRT and progressive Christianity I'm seeing in them, but I'm feeling called to write curriculum and Bible studies, maybe eventually teach or have a Christian resources publishing company. Those at my church I've talked to are just trying to push me through the typical path of MDiv to ordination, but I don't think that sounds right for what I want to do. I, I also don't understand how people who are in ministry get paid for what they do if they're not a full-time pastor. Okay, so a couple of thoughts about this. First of all, Morgan, it's actually the norm in other global contexts. If you look at things more globally, most churches, most pastors historically have been bi- bivocational. And it's just a, a wonderful luxury that we have because we have so much affluence in our country that we can actually have like full-time paid staff a lot of times. But if you go to, you know, a lot of countries where there, there's persecution and lower incomes, being bivocational is actually the norm. So there's there's that to wrestle with. The other thing is you're, you're absolutely right. Like people will tell you, oh, you have to have an MDiv. You have to get ordained. You have to go down this path, but you, you might not need to. And if you're just going to shepherd people, I would actually say you can get there these days without that. And we're going to have to do some things again, I think to get outside of the system and, and you're going to have to be brave and, and, um, and maybe people will look at you with side eye, but people looked at me for eight years with side eye. And when I was in seminary, there were no women theologians in seminary when I was going through. So, um, you know, you have to be strong enough to be able to take that. But I think that if God's giving you a vision for what he's calling you into, he will also be your provider and he will show you the way. So don't feel pressure from other people to go the traditional way if that's just not how God's calling you. So I would say get some people in your life, start a home group and start with that if you can. That's a great way to Start wading into it to see if it's for you. Okay. Ooh, I've been talking a lot. Five minutes. All right. We're going to try to wrap it up here in this third movement. The third thing I want to discuss tonight is the alarmingly (laughs) abysmal situation that Christians are finding themselves in with regard to doctrinal literacy. And I see this playing out on uh, Facebook all the time. People write to me literally every day. Uh, and they send me links to videos and articles, and they they usually want one thing, and that is they want my evaluation. So we're going to have some little hard talk right now. This is some tough love. I love you. I really do. And when I love my children, I don't do things that are I know in the long run will not benefit them. It will not benefit you for you to depend on me. And it would be unhealthy for me to answer all your questions about evaluating things. Frankly, this mindset kind of scares me. And here's why. This is the kind of environment and setup that makes people susceptible to falling to abusive or even cult leaders. You have to do some of the hard work of learning. Um, Christians, please, I'm begging you, please stop consulting discernment blogs to know who's teaching sound doctrine and who isn't. 
I try to help lead in those things, but I can't vet every YouTube preacher on the planet. Okay. And it would be irresponsible of me to do if I did that, if I created an environment where there was a setup where you were just depending on me to do all your vetting. Okay. The perception is that I'm realizing is that I need to start giving some different advice. I need to start relating to people differently. Um, and I'm going to give you a strong encouragement to take the time to educate yourself on basic doctrine and hermeneutics um, so that you won't have to be so dependent. Men, I'm calling on you. Please get a vision to disciple your, your children. Women, moms, Please get a vision to disciple your children and educate yourself on basic doctrine and hermeneutics. I'm teaching a hermeneutics class in the spring. I might do more classes because that one sold out in 24 hours. Um, but I think the research is, bear is bearing all of this out because a couple of weeks ago, there was a study that came out um, that only 2% Two percent of millennials have a biblical worldview. Two percent. So you can go online and you can search for that research. It's available and it was funded um, by Arizona Christian uh, University. And I think it was in connection with Barna, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but. They studied the, the beliefs of millennials and 61% of American millennials consider themselves to be Christians, but 2% of them were found to hold a biblical worldview, 2%. Now you may be wondering, how are they defining biblical worldview? Well, they used a definition from a Barna study back in 2003 uh, believing that absolute moral truths exist, that truth is defined by the Bible, uh, a firm belief that Jesus existed, he had lived a sinless life, God is all-powerful, the all-knowing creator of the universe, he's still ruling today, salvation is a gift from God, it cannot be earned, so Satan is real, Christians have a responsibility to share their faith with others, and the Bible is accurate, Okay. So this is the definition of a biblical worldview. Now I'm going to go back to the 2%. 2%. This, I have so many questions, but I think it, it goes without saying that we need a different strategy uh, for passing the faith along to the next generation, because what we are doing is not working. All right. Can we have some real talk about that? This isn't working. Now I'm finding I've been asking for years because because one of the strategies that I've seen is, well, we need to teach students more apologetics. But I've been working in apologetics a long time, over two decades. And I, I have to tell you, I am skeptical that the numbers bear this out. I haven't seen any studies. And I remember I made a post a few years ago about this and really tick some people off. But I said, can somebody send me a study that shows that teaching young people apologetics actually helps lower the attrition rates for youth groups? Can somebody send me a study? If you know a study, put it in the chat right now. So my husband can send it to me. Um, put it in the chat because I am not aware of a single study where this has been looked at. And I am skeptical that teaching apologetics alone will help these attrition rates. Our attrition rates right now are starting to, that when, when I first started tracking them, it was about 55% of students lost their faith or, or deconstructed or no longer identified as a Christian or at least temporarily went away from their faith, but then came back somewhere around 55%. Then it went to 65%. Now we're in the 75 to 80% range. It, these attrition problems are not going away. 
and we have 2% of millennials who are now the parents with biblical worldviews. So I am working on finding a better solution because we literally cannot go on like this. <laughs> Pastors and parents need a better blueprint for a way forward for discipleship for themselves and for their children. Churches, I'm begging you, please sponsor doctrine classes. Please, we need to start going back to teaching our children something resembling the catechism, which was the, 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 the method that parents used for nearly 2,000 years to train their children in the faith. We need some training on basic hermeneutics. So I'm going to end it tonight with some questions. And, and these are hard questions. Hard questions. But, but what are you willing to give up to disciple your children? Because right now we're in a cultural moment of transition and, and things feel like they're falling apart at the seams. But I'm going to here to tell you that when you look at Christianity historically, this is not the first time that the church has gone through disruption and transition. But what has stayed constant is Christians discipling their children and you need to begin to create a culture in your family and in, in your home group where we are going to disciple our children. We are going to actively equip ourselves. I'm going to start flipping the script. I'm not going to talk about how to engage your kids. I'm going to start talking about discipling the parents. Because the parents need discipling so that they can train their kids in the faith. And I'm especially talking to you dads out there. Um, this is not just the woman's work. <laughs> Homeschooling is not just the women's work. It, dads, I'm, I'm kind of begging you tonight. Please, if, if you haven't yet, start reading about your faith. Start studying about your faith. Start asking the Lord for um, a vision to disciple your children. Um, God has appointed the parents to be in charge of discipleship. It's not the government's job. It's not your youth pastor's job to disciple your children. It's not the, the children's pastor's job. We parents need to step up and disciple our children. And my, my next question is, what are you willing to give up to do this? Are you willing to give up a hobby? What are you willing to give up in your time to better, better educate yourself about the faith so that you can more effectively lead your children? What are you willing to have your kids give up so that there's time cleared in their schedule and a rhythm to be able to have these conversations about the faith? Are you over busy? Are you overcommitted? Maybe they need, I, I've talked to so many youth pastors, they say their biggest competitor um, it, to youth ministry is organized sports. What are you willing to give up to make sure that there is time to disciple and educate your children about the faith? Are you willing for your kid, not even maybe to get straight A's or not take AP classes because there will be more time devoted to faith education? Are you willing for them to um, think about maybe not going to college, but going to a gap year or a trade school. Because the most important thing in your life and that you are going to have a stand for your kid is to disciple them in your faith. What are you and your family willing to do differently? Because what we're doing isn't working. It's not working. This isn't working. Our attrition rates are going up and we have 2% of millennials with a biblical worldview. This isn't working. At some point, we just have to call a thing a thing. I know some of you are going through some really hard times. You're trying to figure out whether you need to leave your church. Some of you are in transition looking for a church. Some of you are just struggling to find your way. I get it. It's a hard time. I hope you found something helpful, something that um, in this to, to help you think about a way forward, some things to think about. We're going to go to the chat one more time and then I'm going to, do the wrap here. Ooh, Allison, too many parents are connected to screens and social media. They want someone else to do the heavy lifting. Ooh, Allison, if you, if you can go back and listen to our, our conversation with Arlene Pelican 
very early in the history of the All the Things show. That was a great conversation. I need to pull some clips from that. Laura, great hard question. What am I willing to give up to disciple my children and myself? Yeah, it's a tough question. Bring out the fan, Justin. Oh. Uh, or sometimes the youth group feels a lot like organized sports. Ooh, Holly. Yes. There, yes. Good comments. I hope you found this, this uh, conversation. I'm not going to call it a teaching. Some of my ranting. <laughs> Helpful. Just sharing. This is what's been on my heart, growing on my heart the last couple of months as I've been kind of putting all these thoughts together into a document and, and trying to shape this conversation. I hope you found it helpful. Um, I hope you'll share it. Please like the, the, the stream. Make sure to, to um, leave a comment if you haven't yet. It really helps the algorithm. But mostly please share this with a friend. Even if you private message them, send it in an email. Do something today to start to build a community around you of like-minded people. Ask the Lord to put somebody in your mind that might be open to this message that maybe is in your area or in your sphere that you can start to, to build a community around you of like-minded parents. Thank you so much for watching. God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thank you.